Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. And a warning that there may be audio today talking about deaths of First Nations people, um, First Nations people. And this is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. First up on the show, we will hear from Samantha Lee, Police Accountability Solicitor at Redfern Legal Centre. Listeners may recall that the TJ Memorial Program broadcasted on the 14th of February 2022. I have invited Samantha to talk about the Legal Centre's media release entitled New South Wales Police, Safe Driving Policy Remains Shrouded in Secrecy Despite Tragic Tragic Deaths. Today we dedicate this show to Mr Wright, an Indigenous youth who died as a result of a police pursuit. Next, I will bring you two interviews about a research report entitled Police Responses to People with Disability, University of New South Wales, Sydney, which became available in October 2021. You will hear from Eileen Baldry, Professor of Criminology at the University of New South Wales, Sydney, who will discuss police responses to people with disability who have been negatively impacted as one of the most vulnerable groups in the community and are overrepresented in the areas of violence, neglect and exploitation. She will talk about how the report can build the Royal Commission's knowledge and evidence base about police processes, interactions and responses to people with disability and how they can be improved. The term First Nations people is used throughout the report to refer to Australia's Indigenous people. Then we will speak with Peter McGillivray, a a Kalakutunga and South Sea Islander lawyer and researcher specialising in the legal needs of First Nations children and young people, particularly those experiencing social and economic disadvantage. Peter will talk about why the research report is important for the Royal Commission and will discuss the key findings for First Nations people. Eileen and Peter will both discuss gaps in the research and what still needs to be done, drawing upon the key findings in general. Now to introduce our first interview. Disturbingly and quite rightly, Samantha talks about Mr Wright who recently died in Sydney after a collision with an an unmarked police car. This is a matter of urgency following the tragic death of the 16-year-old Indigenous youth. Samantha says that although we do not know the complete details of Mr Wright's death and whether in fact a police pursuit was involved, it stirs up memories of the tragic death of Thomas Hickey and is a timely reminder of the issues around police pursuits. 
We will speak with Sam about police motor vehicle incidents and how they often happen in the context of police pursuits and continue to have horrific consequences impacting many, including young people, innocent bystanders, ambulance services, witnesses and even police themselves. But the New South Wales Police safe driving policy remains shrouded in secrecy and hidden from public scrutiny. Scrutiny, I beg your pardon. And so we'll be speaking with Samantha shortly. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Angry at paying the heavy price for COVID? How about healthy, safe conditions at work? More health care, less police powers, a safe world with free vaccines for everyone. Rally Saturday, the 19th of March. Fight for public health and workplace safety. State Library, 12 o'clock noon. This rally was initiated by Workers' Solidarity and rally organisers are 3CR supporters. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And I'm hoping we've got Samantha on the line. Hello, Samantha. Welcome to the program. Hi, Marissa. How are you? Not bad, thank you, considering everything that's been going on. Sam, I'm wondering if you could just talk about the media release and what's happened with the safe driving policy. Yeah, so we've been following the issue of police pursuits for some time now and we have been calling for New South Wales Police to release their policy that guides the New South Wales Police Force about what to do or how to proceed when an incident does arise where a pursuit may occur um, or be about to occur. Now, we still haven't got the full release to that policy and the reason why we want it is obviously because of the really heartbreaking and hard-to-imagine incident of... uh, Mr. Wright and his family. But there's been many other cases where police pursuits have been involved in the death of those who have been pursued or those who are bystanders. Uh, Actually, even police have been killed by police pursuits. Uh, Then we have ambulance or rescue workers who have to witness these incidences. It has a wide impact on many people and obviously some it has a very drastic impact. It really is incredibly sad, isn't it, Sam? It's, I don't think we can put it into words, can we? Especially um, for those who have had to experience um, a death of a child in particular, uh, the you know the depth of that grief I think is really you can't uh, even begin to process that. Mm. So there's been like an identified spike in deaths, hasn't there? And yes, over a period of yeah. time, there's been increases. Mm. Right. Can you talk about some of the recommendations that have been made by the New South Wales State Coroner? in response to these tragic incidents? Yeah, there's been a a couple actually made recently in a coroner's um, 
finding, and that was about the police defining issues around, for example, terms such as termination and, and what is pursued. Although these types of recommendations have come, come up previously by other state coroners, uh, we've got things around standard broadcasting on, on police radio to ensure that the language is consistent and what really the, the one big one is around when to terminate a pursuit. And if you look at other states, particularly states like Queensland, uh, they have provided detail about their policy. And like the UK, they have a risk kind of management model uh, that clearly sets you know, criteria and risk assessment for when a pursuit should occur and when a pursuit should be terminated. I think what we have in regards to police pursuits or, you know, it happens just in general when people get behind the wheel of a car is that the processing of a policy gets taken over by emotion and the emphasis, although I'm not talking about right itself because we don't know the details, but, you know, this, this need to chase uh, seems to override everything else and that results in these horrific uh, incidences and tragic death. Absolutely. So although, you know, TJ Hickey is, is obviously a, re a very important part of the North Zone Mr. Right as well, could indicate racial profiling, couldn't it? Look, all that does certainly come into a mix, particularly when we're talking about an ab, an Aboriginal uh, Torres Strait Islander young person. Uh, I mean, you, you can't take that out of the mix. And uh, the fact that, uh, you know, these incidents and where they occur and uh, country areas and, you know, places like Redfern... Um, you know, you, you can't deny that there's a, a racial element to all of this as well. Yeah, in particular because it's we need something robust and tra and transparent, isn't that right? Well, exactly, especially when it has such wide ramifications, particularly in public arenas. I mean, we're talking about these pursuits happening on public streets and we're not just talking about, you know, someone uh, turning, you know, doing a, a minor traffic incident. This is a, you know, incident that has, as I said before, wide-ranging ramifications and ends in the death of many people uh, who have been chased by police and, as I said, even police themselves. So even if there isn't that desire to ensure that those out in the community knows what what is happening. I think even police and police families should be made aware of this policy because it has an internal impact as well. Absolutely, because it it sounds like to me that they haven't updated that policy. They're not releasing it. It's, there's a lot of secrecy. And I'm just having a look here at um, something that's been written in the media release about the dangers that are inherent in a police pursuit of a motorcyclist exceeding the speed limit. Can you talk about that? Just in general terms, but we all know that being on a motorbike uh, is, is, it makes one very 
more more vulnerable than being in in a car purely on the basis that there is no metal protecting that person except for a helmet. And when a person is pursued on a motorbike, uh, it can end, as we've seen, with, um, well, Mr. Rye, although I said we don't know the details of that. Um, sure. You know, it, it ends up in a pretty terrible set of circumstances and uh, injuries that lead, unfortunately, to the death of, of the person that's been chased. You've actually really talked about some really important points and clearly we need to understand here that a lot of these these deaths could be prevented and basically you've talked about the definition of the term termination as it relates to pursuits and, a, and, and you've talked about language as well, about communication. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's some, um, you know, I'm, I'm just looking at some stats here while I'm talking to you. You know, there's a... The deaths uh, range from 16 years of age uh, up to 40, 43 years of age. Uh, there's, you know, some terrible circumstances for each of these pursuit matters, which the coroners have been looking at and have been calling for change for some time. I mean, they're absolutely horrific in this day and age of technology, advanced technology, surely there must be better ways of policing. You know, we have mobile data that can locate people at certain places. We have drones. We have CCTV footage. We have in-car video. So much. Uh, we have red light cameras. I mean, surely this process must be outdated. I mean, we don't need a police car chasing someone in this pain age. And then you've got, you know, the old-time policing investigation where police do their investigation after an incident and, and locate the alleged offender. Police investigating police. Yes, it's, it's you know, it's a thing that comes up all the time in our practice. I mean, there's huge problems with police investigating police and not to say, because I, I have dealt with some professional units within the police body, that there are some high up units that do take you know, some issues uh, seriously and act professionally. However, it's tainted, right? I mean, it, it's within a police unit. Uh, the incident involves police officers and their the perception, even if the process does um, take on a professional route, the perception is that it will not be independent and that's really important, particularly for the families. Absolutely. Sam, thank you so much for coming on the program. We've got a really packed show today and, in fact, the show mm, is all about like police it. today. But mm. <laughs> So could you just give us the, the RLC website in case people want to read the media release and look at the list of recommendations made by the New South Wales Coroner's Court? Oh, of course. It's rlc.org.au. That's rlc.org.au. We're a free service for legal advice uh, and there's lots of fact sheets on our, our website about police accountability. Sam, thank you so much. Thanks very much for coming on. Oh, thank you. Take care. Take care. We'll do a follow-up soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.
Join 3CR for a day of special programming in celebration of International Women's Day on Tuesday the 8th of March. With a stellar lineup featuring 24 hours of international current affairs, music, arts, activism, culture and much, much more. This is a unique broadcast that you won't hear anywhere else. We'll bring you the usual celebration of non-conforming feminism. No leadership breakfast here. Just 24 hours of grassroots radical discussions by women and gender non-conforming presenters, producers and musicians dismantling the patriarchy. Taking collective action and imagining the future of feminism. This year's celebrations include a street party in the lane alongside 3CR from 4pm to 8pm in Little Victoria Street. There'll be music, performers, food and friends. Can't make it? You can also listen live. This is a COVID-safe event. So join 3CR in celebrating the amazing women and gender non-conforming people in your community from midnight Monday the 7th of March until midnight on Tuesday the 8th of March. For full details, head to the website 3cr.org.au slash IWD2022. you're back with the Do and Time show and we're going to be speaking um, next with Professor Eileen Baldry who will discuss the research report police responses to people with disability University of New South Wales, Sydney and I wanted to read out the entire bio. Eileen has done so many things but I will have to shorten it now because we've, we've got we're running out of time and I really want her to speak about what's happening with the report. So Eileen is a Deputy Vice-Chancellor, Equity, Diversity and Inclusion and Professor of Criminology at the University of New South Wales, Sydney. And she's held senior positions in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, serving as Interim Dean, Associate Dean and Deputy Dean. And she's also been appointed the first female Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of New South Wales, and look, we, I, say, I would say this all year, but it's particularly pertinent given that it is um, the lead up to International Women's Day tomorrow. So Eileen will discuss the report and also bring forward some case studies to inform the research. And she's actually had a lot of experience working um, in, in the capacity of um, cognitive, of people with cognitive and intellectual disabilities. Hello, Eileen. Welcome to the program. Hello. Thanks so much. Great to talk with you. Sorry about the lateness, Eileen. No, don't apologise. It was great. I heard the very end of that. And it's a really, really important area um, to be considering uh, the coronial uh, police and coronial inquiries. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, 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 really, it, it really does tie in with a lot of racial profiling, doesn't it? And yes. really yes. quite sad. Indeed, it does. A lot of work yes. to do. Eileen, I'm wondering if you could just talk about um, the background to the report and and I believe it's it's about the Royal Commission and providing evidence to the Royal Commis- Commission that um, people with disability have been overrepresented sorry in neglect and violence. Is that right? That's that's correct. Um, it's very very pleased to give you uh, what I hope is a bit of a thumbnail sketch. Um, about two years ago, the, I've been involved with quite a number of the things the Royal Commission has been doing, and I've certainly given a number of uh, submissions um, and, um, and and evidence. 
But a, a couple of years ago, they contacted me and uh, the team at UNSW, who I'll mention in a minute, to uh, look at the way in which police respond to people with disability. And uh, so they engaged us to uh, do a report for them. The, the people who I work with and have worked with for a very long time, um, a, a emeritus Professor Leanne Dowse, uh, who has been a colleague of mine for a long time, Simone Rowe and Michael Baker, who are both PhD candidates nearing the end of their candidature at UNSW uh, in the area of people with disability, particularly cognitive disability uh, and uh, criminal justice to some extent, and me. So um, our little team uh, pulled together a program of work that would inform the Royal Commission. The Royal Commission asked us to inform them uh, a knowledge and evidence base of police responses to people with disability, um, take an evidence-based response uh, and approach to what we were doing, consider police responses that might increase the risk of and or prevent violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of people with disability, uh, and very particularly to look at whether there are any innovative models or alternatives to police uh, and uh, consider the experiences of culturally and linguistically diverse and First Nations people with disability and, and of course, uh, take a more intersectional approach to this. So it's not just disability. It, it We were asked to look at how this impacts a whole range of people who are disadvantaged or um, discriminated against in a whole variety of other ways who also have disability. So that, that was what we were asked to do and that's what we did and I'm very happy to talk with you about that this afternoon. Okay. So can you talk about what some of the, the objectives of the report are and maybe then we, after that we can summarise the findings and maybe draw upon a few case studies as well. Of course. Uh, so the objectives as far as the Royal Commission were concerned were that we provide them with um, any uh, current literature, previous or current, particularly current literature, uh, around this area of the way in which police respond to people with disability uh, they did ask us to compile case studies and to investigate it via, investigate the whole area via, across Australia. Uh, so this is not just um, New South Wales or Victoria. Or, um, it is uh, looking at what is happening across Australia. Uh, and that included police policy and practice across the nation and very particularly also to talk with disability advocates and support persons across Australia to find out what their experience has been in supporting and working with people with disability as they interact with police. So that the those were the goals. And that's what we put together. And I'll just very briefly uh, give you a sense of the findings. Sure. Uh, I know you're going to ask me that, and so might as well that's move okay. straight into that. That um, the 
literature review and the case studies demonstrate that police responses to people with disability are almost always inadequate. Uh, and this is because of two factors that are very fundamental to the causation of and remedies to uh, the way in which police respond. First thing is, over the last 20 to 30 years, uh, police policing across Australia and in most Western countries, in fact, has expanded significantly uh, and that has led to the related use of policing as the default institutional response to a whole range of social, cultural and economic forms of disadvantage. And this is particularly pertinent to people with disability because uh, the people with disability who end up in criminal justice uh, are those who are also disadvantaged in a whole range of other ways. For example, they live in very poor communities, they come from families uh, where the family has little resource to support them, they have come from... Uh, disadvantaged schools and an ed and disadvantaged education. Uh, they are people from First Nations. They are people from cold communities and so on. Then the second thing that um, is propelling this is a concomitant reduction of funding for appropriate social and human services. And I'm very happy to expand a little on that because I'm sure people are thinking, uh, but aren't we funding this huge NDIS? Uh, and and why is not the NDIS uh, doing this uh, work to support this group of people and also informing the police, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that they are helping to keep people with disability out of criminal justice? Now, the issue with um, the NDIS is that uh, many people may or may not know who, who are listening to your program that the NDIS, in the end, only provides across Australia funding and packages for about 10% of people who have disability. That's the first thing. The second thing is that all of the work I and all of the people that I've worked with over the last... 20 years uh, around people with disability and criminal justice shows that uh, by far the majority of people who end up in juvenile justice or in, in the courts or the police who have disability um, are not receiving support. And so the first time that they really get a proper uh, assessment and, and perhaps referral to support is when they end up in prison or end up in juvenile justice or, or end up in that sort of circumstance. So this is to kind of help paint a picture, a picture. that yeah. Yeah, that, the, that the NDIS is not the solution here. The NDIS should be helping. There's no question about that, but they're Absolutely. not the solution. And, and sorry to interrupt you there, Eileen. Now, the, the, the thing is here, what I find quite disturbing and quite appalling actually and moving on from that point because that was quite relevant what you were saying is the way that police are you know where it says here there's a quote in the report don't worry about looking at the page number but it says it felt like they police were using my disability to discredit me discredit me not help me 
Yes, and it looks as if there are quite a few case studies here in this report where if a person with disability is a witness or um, a, an alleged offender or a victim, they are told that they're not very bright or that... Yes. You know, do you know what I mean? There seems to be... It's very disturbing. It is extremely disturbing and we see this across the world actually and particularly because we have much more evidence from Western countries. But we see that approach um, across the world and that is uh, the first um, sort of put a call here is for everybody to understand that the police are the gateway to the criminal justice system. You do not go to court, you do not go to prison, you do not go to juvenile justice if the police uh, are not the, the group or the person or the agency that first engages you because that's the gateway. And so the fact that uh, people with disability are massively overrepresented in prisons and in uh, courts and in, in criminal justice in general and particularly in juvenile justice is they can, only, they can only get there because the police um, arrest them or charge them. And so the, what you're pointing to with the case studies are the, is some of the really important findings that this report provided to the Royal Commission they are things like, um, fundamentally, police should not be the first responders to an event or an issue or what is maybe thought to be offending by a person with disability. Now, why is that? Why should that be the case? It should be the case that it is not the police because police, by you know, they, they tell us, the police tell us that this is not their training. This is not what they, uh, that they are trained or able to do. And so the, in, a, in almost a one-liner, the results of this report and the recommendation of this report is that police should not be the first responders. So who should be the first responder or responders? Well, there are a number of things to point out here. One is that many people with disability who end up in contact with the police could be uh, diverted if they had proper, appropriate, supportive disability work. And why do we know this is the case? We know this is the case because there are hardly any middle-class or wealthy people with disability who end up being arrested and going to court because, uh, of basically because of their behaviour, because of their disability. And so what this points to is that this is a class, a poverty, a disadvantage factor that applies to uh, people who um, are poorer, and so on. So it is it, it is grossly unfair, um, and it is a, a great social injustice that police then pick up uh, people like this, particularly Aboriginal kids who you know might be behaving in difficult ways. 
And at this yeah. point, um, I just wanted to let you know too, Eileen, that I've managed to actually have um, Peter on in, in the oh, next excellent. interview. Excellent. So we'll be able to tie all that up and, and actually we're due to speak with her shortly. But excellent. I'm so glad, Eileen, that I had you on because I wanted you to... I mean, Peter will discuss this too, but I, we're, we're actually going to talk more about the gaps in the report and the lack of literature. And she'll yes. talk more about the First Nations people and particularly young people. But yes. your in, the interview that we've had today is really useful and pertinent because yes. you've talked so much about the findings and what the report is about. And can I just add, before we sign sure. off, I know we're a bit late, That's but right. there are examples of really terrific programs in other parts and in Australia in very small ways. Um, there's a thing called CAHOOTS. It's, it's a great acronym. Cri it's called Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets. And this program is in Eugene, Oregon. It provides alternative first responders at, that, that take the place of police. And these people are really well equipped to respond to the needs of people with disability because they are community-based people. They are trained in disability, mental health, cognitive disability, uh, hearing impairment. They are trained. And so the police call them. And so many people with disability are kept out of the criminal justice system because of that intervention. But equally, um, we do not... We have almost the lowest investment in supported housing and uh, community housing and social housing in the Western world. Uh, if there was better housing, better health and better disability-related supports for people from very early on, that would make a huge uh, difference. And we already have some programs in Australia. In New South Wales, we have the Justice Advocacy Service, is a related um, legal way to support uh, people with disability. But equally, there's the Cognitive Impairment Diversion Program, which has just been refunded by the New South Wales Attorney-General for another four years, which provides diversionary options uh, before the person gets uh, convicted or, or even goes to court in some cases. So there are, we know how to do this. We can do this. We just have to do it. Absolutely, Eileen. And, you know, also, um, and I'm hoping to speak with Peter about this soon, in regards to the unconscious bias, oh. there's no point in having all this training and programs if we're not able to combat racism and systemic racism, I should say, and, and unconscious bias. Yes, absolutely. And Peter is the best person to talk with you about that. No, that's great. Mm -hmm. Eileen, thank you so much for coming on the program. This is the second time you and I have spoken. In yes. fact, we did some work, you and I, in 2020. We did an interview about um, First Nations people and the criminal justice system. We did. And it was an absolute pleasure to talk with you again. And I do hope, you know, that spreading this knowledge and this information that we can do this differently and that we have to change the way in which we, we do this um, work with people with disability, to keep them out of the criminal justice system and to support them appropriately. The more that word is spread, the better. Thank you. Absolutely. Take care of yourself, Eileen. Thank you so much. Same to you. Bye. Until next time. Thanks. Bye-bye. Yes, bye.
You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Transitions Film Festival returns this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about technological innovations and change-makers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, food revolutions, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February 18th to March 13th, with screenings in Melbourne and online nationwide. For the full program, visit transitionsfilmfestival.com. Transitions Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time Show. And finally, we will speak with Peter Melkivaray and... Sorry, Matt Gilray, who is a... um, a First Nations woman, lawyer and researcher, and she has done a grad dip, um, a couple of degrees, really amazing degrees, and grad dip legal prac based in the Institute of Global Development and Faculty of Law and Justice at New South Wales. And Peter has worked on a range of criminology, legal services and community development projects in Sydney and across Australia. Peter was a field researcher and project manager for the Arc Linkage Project, Indigenous Australians with Mental Health Disorders and Cognitive Disability in the Criminal Justice System. Her area of legal practice specialisation is the legal needs of First Nations children and young people, particularly those experiencing social and economic disadvantage. For example, children and young people in the criminal justice system and the care and protection system. Peter is passionate about youth justice and children and young people's participation in community development work. She's currently completing her PhD research in the criminalisation of First Nations young children and people with intellect, First Nations children and young people with intellectual disability and cognitive impairment in New South Wales through the FACU. So we will continue our discussion and in regards to the report. Hello, Peter, welcome to the program. Hi, Marissa. How are you going? It's lovely to have you. It's been a, a really, really packed show and there's been a lot to talk about. I'm wondering if you could just correct some of my mispronunciation mistakes and just talk about what land you're from first. Yeah, no worries. Um, well, I'm a Kalkatongu and South Islander woman from uh, Queensland. I was born on Durable Country, now known as Rockhampton, um, but all my mob is from Quangkari and, and uh, Mount Isa. Um, and currently I am on Bidjigal country, uh, also known as Maroubra in New South Wales. Wonderful. Now, just as an aside, before we begin our interview, I just wanted to let you know that when I was reading out your graduate degrees, my Braille computer froze. So um, I do apologise for that. (laughs) That's okay. My technology is very, very rustic, so um, I do apologise for that. Oh, that's right. Listen, they're like, um, you know, Pokemon. you just got to collect them all, so there's no point reading them all out. (laughs) Well, that's exactly right. But I'm sure listeners have got a good idea now about what you're doing because one of the things that we pride ourselves on this show is that we like to read out the buyers because that's really important. It's about recognition of what people do. Thank you. I appreciate it. Now, let's get on with it. Um, Just wanted to ask you, first of all, to talk about some of the gaps in the report. I mean, we we spoke to Professor Eileen um, previously just about some of the key findings, 
But I, I wanted to talk to you really about some of the gaps that are inherent in the report and what's going on with First Nations young people because one of the things that really has become apparent to me in reading the report is that there's been a lot of police uh, cruelty and violations of human rights. Yeah, that's right. And I think, um, you know, you can read that in the report in terms of, you know, the framing of the issues for First Nations people being one which is inherently about police violence towards First Nations people with disability um, and the fact that First Nations people with disability are disproportionately subject to police violence, abuse and neglect. And that's why it's really important that one of the aims of this research was actually about building an understanding of how police processes and that the role that they play in the criminalisation of First Nations people with disability um, actually causes harm um, and where it's making the situation so much worse. And that, that can't be illustrated more clearly enough than in this, you know, a heartbreaking statistic that between 2008 and 2019, 23 people, First Nations people with cognitive impairment and or mental health um, diagnosis died in police custody. So we know that First Nations people are experiencing the violence of policing disproportionately, but this is not just about individual police and racism, which is what we're talking about, but the institutions and the systems that perpetuate that racial violence against us. So it's, you know, that's there as one of the aims of the report, and that's significant because um, we know that type of um, critical um, presentation of the evidence um, we don't see it enough, um, and I was happy that this report attempted to do that. Of course, we need to now extend this to really hearing the voices and, and giving, really privileging the voices of First Nations people with disability. Um, and we know that it's hard to do that in these kinds of inquiries, such as the Royal Commission. Um, there's been good attempts to do that, but as a researcher, I'm always thinking deeply about how we are making sure that this work is led by First Nations people with disability and especially First Nations young people with disability. So I think that's, you know, really a key um, element of research and work done in this space. Uh, and I think that's a big gap. Absolutely, indeed. So how does this gap affect First Nations people, particularly young people in practice? Yeah, I think it's about, um, you know, the, the, the strength of this report was that um, real examples of people with disabilities experiences is analysed and presented um, as a way to inform and understand what evidence exists about what works. Now, what happens, though, is that if we're not um, actually listening to First Nations people um, and young people about their experiences, it's not informing part of the solutions. Um, and, you know, one of the other really important parts of this research was that it looked at alternatives to using the police, but that can look really different for First Nations people with disability. Um, and Eileen referred to that a, a little bit yes. in, um, in her summary. And so what, what works 
for um, some people may not work for First Nations people. And the way that we um, build solutions that achieve their aim is by talking to the people directly um, who are experiencing that. So another group of um, that's really important that I think we there needs to be a lot more work done is the experiences of First Nations people with disability from the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, and there is an emerging evidence base of um, what's working and not working around police interactions and police violence. But I think we need to do a far more to um, document and tell the story about um, the marginalisation that's experienced by First Nations people in that community. Um, and if, as always, the research that's needed needs to be led by people with disability from that community. Um, and as I said, as researchers, um, we need to be thinking carefully about how our work is, um, is actually helping the cause. So there's still a lot to be done and, you know, coupled with that, there's also by um, First Nations people a deep dis distrust of authorities and it is important for First Nations people to feel culturally safe, isn't it? That's right. And that's why it's important that um, there was such a, a strong focus in the report on solutions which are not led by the police and which don't further centre the criminal injustice system. Um, you know, we need to be making sure that in work that we're doing, um, we're actually contributing to and building community-based solutions which are First Nations-led because that's what disability justice and First Nations justice looks like for us. It recognises that the police are harm-causing um, and until, you know, there's perhaps massive reform or abolition of policing as an institution, um, we need to be taking steps to build our solutions which protect us from harmful impact of policing. So, you know, the findings of this report that Eileen talked about in terms of the massive expansion of policing as a way to, you know, be providing um, social support, we as First Nations people know more than um, anyone else that that's incredibly harmful and dangerous and often fatal for us. And so we're really interested in alternatives to policing. That model that um, Eileen mentioned, CAHOOTS, is a really excellent example of non-policing approaches to providing um, support to people with disability, particularly people with cognitive disability. Um, and, you know, being able to document models and building um, solutions which are First Nations-led similar to that, there's just not enough investment in that. There's not enough money going into building community-led solutions. Um, another really important um, solution for First Nations people with disability, which we know um, decreases contact with police, is housing. And I'd just echo Eileen's point um, that in this country, we don't have enough investment in social housing on the housing first principle, um, which is where you um, provide people with housing and that has a huge impact um, to decrease people's contact with police in particular. Um, but that costs a lot of money and our governments are just not investing in those types of housing arrangements. Instead, we have public housing arrangements which, you know, require people to do all sorts of things, go to Centrelink appointments and all of these types of coercive uh, things. That, yeah, punitive, exactly. So, Peter, like, yeah, sorry, what were you going to say? Yeah. Oh, I interrupted you there. 
I was just going to ask you, because we've got a bit of a shortage of time, I'm wondering, just to give listeners a bit of an idea, would you just be able to, to speak about one of the case studies in the research report, just so that people can just get a taste? And then also, could you just um, talk about how people can access the report? Yeah. Um, so one of the case studies that I'll talk about is a young Aboriginal man from Queensland um, who is in police custody. Um, he's just just over the age of criminal responsibility and so arguably is somebody who shouldn't even be in police custody in the first place. And because of the police's, um, you know, lack of disability-informed approach and training and the uh, the racism in their logic, um, they make all, make all kinds of conclusions about this young person's um, literacy capacity. And as a consequence, um, he has to um, stay in police custody without a lawyer and without any legal representation of um, who are understanding of his disability. So that's a fairly... I think that one's important because um, you see how my area of interest is um, Aboriginal young people with disability. And this is an example of a young person who should have never have been in police custody, who should have never had their liberty restricted in such a way. Um, and if there were social supports um, outside of police contact, where police are the, the first responders, um, we have an, you know, a process that's unnecessarily criminalising an Aboriginal young person who's vulnerable. Absolutely. I mean, from what I can see here, Peter, Joel is, is, was only 14. Yeah. And he was in Queensland, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. And from what I can see here, he was 11 when he was apprehended by police for serious allegations. That's right. And, and then there was footage that, you know, um, they weren't even aware that he had fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. That's you right. Know? Like, mm -hmm. and and they're asking him. And I'm sorry, I was wondering if I could just point this out. They they appear to have been asking Joel, the police, that is, if he could read or write. And Joel responding that he could kind of read and write. And they assumed that that he was literate. And then the the assumption meant that Joel was not afforded the right to have a lawyer present at the interview. That is just a case of of extreme manipulation and uh, racism. It really is. And it, it, the, the policing logic, this is where we see, um, you know, the racism in the assumptions that the police make about a young Aboriginal boy and his literacy capacity. Um, there's so much going on here in terms of, you know, how harmful the police interaction with him um, actually just makes things so much worse. Um they didn't even and yet, bother to, to explore yeah. what his disability was. Not at all. And, you know, this is the there's an argument that, you know, certain training and capacity building of police will solve this issue. And I'm just not convinced of that. Um, I think there are protections that already exist in the law and that limit police powers in this regard and they're not used in this situ as you said in this situation he should have had a support person and someone there um there was multiple failings of existing police process so and we see that in lots of different examples of the police involvement with people with disability as victims alleged offenders and witnesses the complexity of these policing processes 
um, they really um, require scrutiny. And, and this is what we see for people with disability in particular, just how much harder it is to navigate these systems. I mean, the question is, Peter, you know, it's, they say it's, it's important to have training, that there's no training in the academy. But how can be, police be trained to be polite and to be nice? You can't train someone to be nice. You can't train someone to be... To be uh, <laughs> To communicate better, and uh, do you, does that make sense? Wait, wait, Absolutely. How, how can and, you do yeah. that? Well, I think it goes to Eileen's point about the police being the gatekeepers, right? If we, and it's why it's so important to be building um, solutions to the social needs that people with disability need outside of the police, outside of the criminal justice system, and not give responsibility to the police to deal with these issues, um, and. And, you know, in, in communities where there is only the police, if you're in trouble, the only the only place that you can call um, is the police to help de-escalate a situation or because you're desperate and you don't know what to do. Um, this is where alternatives and the resourcing of alternatives and the support of community organisations um, such as Aboriginal Medical Services with Aboriginal health workers who are on the front line and responding to these situations all of the time. The strengths are there. People, there's a lot of expertise and experience in communities of how to um, respond in a non-punitive way. Um, it's about finding, finding those, um, telling those stories, recognising that work and then resourcing communities to do more of what they do really well. And that's why I think the CAHOOTS program is a really good example, but sure. there are also many examples of, you know, Aboriginal health workers all across the country who are the first responders in crisis. Um, and how do we support them? How do we um, recognise that important work that they do? Um, because we know that that's, you know, they're, they're the alternatives to calling the police. Um, it's a systemic failure when, it, when you are you need assistance because your disability needs are not being met and you only have the police to intervene. Um, that's the failure. Absolutely. And it, 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 it's a thickness in the police force, really, because it, it's, it's really about not only systemic racism, but the failure, the, 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 the inherent failure within the system to, um, to learn more about disability and, and to, be, to be kind and compassionate. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the recognising that there are limits to achieving that in an institution like the police um, is important. There's a, there's a many debates going on um, in building, you know, responses to um, family and domestic violence, which suggest things like um, female-only police stations and... Um, sure. you know, Aboriginal police patrols and even the recruitment of Aboriginal police into into um, policing. Now, there's there's criticism to those approaches because at the core of the, the approach of policing um, is control um, and coercion and there's, they're the, the opposite of what we're trying to achieve in um, helping people. Absolutely. So, we're, nearing, we're nearing the end of the show, but... Um, I hope we've succeeded today in, in looking at some of the gaps in the report, Peter. 
Yeah, thank you, Marissa. I think so. Um, you know, it's a great report, but for me, there's still a lot of important work to do. I'd like to have you back um, as a follow-up at some stage in the next um, month or so. Is that okay? Yeah, that would be great. I'd love That'd to. That would be Thanks lovely. Where, what's the website for the report? Um, so the report is available on the Disability Royal Commission website. There's a little tab called Research Reports, and you can find it on there. I believe um, the, the actual title of the report is um, Research Report, Police Responses to People with Disability. Wonderful. Peter, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It was lovely to have you back on. Thanks, Marissa. Have a good one. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Live at the Bowl is on now. The open-air series returns from January to April with an exhilarating program of live performance. See some of the best homegrown and international acts on the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl stage. Share a picnic on the hill, take in a symphony at sunset or dance the night away to your favourite musicians. Explore the full program at artscentremelbourne.com.au. A 3CR supporter. And it's goodbye from Marissa and the Doin' Time Show. Stay tuned every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Doin' Time Show. We're going to be going out with our theme song, Black Fella, White Fella, from the Rumpy Band. And stay safe, everybody. And if you want to hear a repeat of that show, that will be coming up um, this Monday, coming up on the, on the 14th of March, um, I believe, over the long weekend. And I'll be back in the next couple of weeks. Listen to the repeat show if you need to. Thank you. Bye.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.